The Builders, the Doylem who created movements and shaped our world. Presented by Gedalia Gutenberg and Rabbi Ephraim Zalman Galinsky. Hello and welcome back to part two of The Builders, a podcast about the Gedolim who built movements and shaped our world. Welcome back to listeners, and welcome back to you, Rabbi Ephraim Zalman Galinsky. And welcome back to you, my dear friend, Dalia. That's wonderful. So I know you've been digesting part one for the last few days. Let's be honest with listeners, it wasn't meant to be part one and part two, that we just got carried away in the first part of the podcast of Aaron, but you've had time to digest what we discussed. And do you want to share your thoughts? You asked me what my what my uh, impressions were after I digested the previous chapter. I think the most important message that came out of it, and I spoke Barabim, I was a Simcha, and I spoke Barabim about this as well, is that people think that Rabban was born a leader. Tremendous intellectual capacities and and Hatibur and the tremendous energy that emanated from him. But it's far from the truth. Rabban went through very difficult periods in his life. You mentioned it in the first chapter that he was a yosem, a double yosem from both, double orphan from both sides at a very, very young age. He had people battling over him, schlepping him to different directions, Yiddishkeit and the opposite. But his great Messias Nefesh, and something that people don't mention is his great Avas Yisrael. You know, we think obviously Saul was given to a certain part of, of Judaism, right? But when you see these doylem, especially Rabban, at obviously Saul, you cannot explain his life. How did that display itself? Because by nature, he was very, very shy. He wouldn't have done what he achieved if he would have stuck to his nature. He pushed himself to the limits because of a tremendous achrais that he felt for Ami Saul. I don't think there's, there's no doubt that, that that was what was pushing him. So it's interesting, and we're just getting ahead of ourselves because I'm going to come back and uh, circle back in it in a minute just to map out this episode. But it's just interesting that you see the engine room, you feel that the engine room of his development, his growth and his, and his, and his legacy, what he did, what he achieved was love, was the Abbas Yisrael love for Am Yisrael. And I mean, it's possible to I see. Don't, I know that people will actually smile when, when they would hear that from me, because Urban was like the epitome of, of the Shtarkite, and the fire, and the Leichem Milchomes Hashem. But you cannot explain, I'm willing to sign that, you cannot explain his tremendous dedication to Klai Yisrael without that tremendous Avas Yisrael. There's no other way to explain it. I mean, I, could, I, I think it, the case could be made, again, for me, this is a case of intellectual analyzing this, but just one of the things that emerges is, is his belief perhaps in the eternity of the promise of the of, of the eternity of Torah itself. Meaning, one could almost make a case that it was his belief that Torah would eventually had to succeed in America. And that was the engine engine of his whole... Were that to be the, the engine room, like you're saying, then it would have been enough, it would suffice if, if he would have 
created yeshiva as great as Lakewood, as great Lakewood is, right? But the fact that he wasted, quote-unquote, so much time on Torah Masera and Chinuch in America proves that there's something else involved. I don't think he ever imagined that from Chinuch in America they would come out but he did imagine, I'm, I'm saying, even in Torah Masera, maybe yes, but in Chinuch in for like far-flung cities like Dimona, whatever it is, I don't think he thought that he's going to create Dodi Yisrael from that. What he did think was he was saving these Yiddish Neshamas. That's a very interesting idea. Let's, let's just back up a bit and see where we left off. We left off, I think, in, in Henry Morgenthau's office in where, wherever the Treasury Secretary in the time of uh, President Roosevelt uh, sat. Rev. Aaron is sitting there and he's managed to persuade, again, this one of the most powerful people in America, possibly in the world, to do the impossible to send funds to an enemy country to rescue Jews. And that incredible, incredibly moving and powerful scene as he does so. But really, from then on, that takes us to the, as it were, we encounter at this point of Aaron at his most, the peak of his powers almost. You have, you have someone who is bringing so much to the table. And the last two decades of his life, 1941 to 1962, he was Nifta. He went from being an Iloi and the youngest pre-war uh, Roshiva, right? And the builder of European Torah, to become the builder, the creator of the American Torah world. It's a fascinating, fascinating example of how one person, obviously with Seattle Shemaya, can do so much heavy lifting. And I think we're gonna, I'm going to come back to the phrase heavy lifting later. So if I had to summarize this, you know, in advance, what we're going to, perhaps we're going to see in this, in this second part of the episode over here, is if I had to summarize this later period of his life, we see over here, number one, the creation of Lakewood. This is a gigantic fortress of Torah that began with, I believe, 14 Bacharim, right, in some, it's summer in Lakewood. And number two, I'm just putting all the cards out there in, in advance. Something I'd like to touch on is I think one of the things that he's going to, we're going to see is that what he puts down is even beyond a yeshiva, which led to so much Torah and so many Talmudim and so many daughter institutions, right? That spread out. We see also, he, he puts something on the table, the legitimacy of Torah learning. And that, that I think is, to me, that is absolutely the key to understanding his legacy. And number three and four is, is the Torah Messiah Jewish Day Schools, which is both in America and in Israel, in Eretz Yisrael. And that is the kind of the package of what he said in, did more in 20 years than others could have done in 200 years. It's interesting when you mentioned that besides creating the framework of Lakewood Yeshiva, he laid down the, like, the, the true hashkafa, Torah Lishma. I think in the article they mentioned that there was a certain point when he was talking to Balabatim, I think, and he says, I want you to be misled. I know that the future rabbis are going to come from Lakewood, the future teachers can come from Lakewood, but that's now why I'm building Lakewood. I'm building Lakewood because I believe in Toyo Lishma. Okay, so totally agree. And that's if we're already on there. So let's, let me just spell out a certain theory that I have and, we'll, and perhaps we'll get back in a minute to, to the actual Lakewood itself. What I'm talking about is putting Torah legitimacy on the map. It begins with actually on the other side of the Atlantic in England. My grandfather, Oliver Shalom, was after a few years ago, Michael Gutentag, and he was a perhaps unusual for, you know, Balabatim in, in England at that time. He was, he spent five, I think, six years of in Yeshiva. Nobody did that back then. And that was, there were very few. And he was in Manchester Yeshiva, the famous Manchester Rosh Yeshiva 
founded by Rabbi Yudhuzev's father. Father. So, so my grandfather was in the yeshiva under Rabbi Yudhuzev, but under his father as well, I, I, I believe. Is there Moshe? Moshe Segal was his father? I don't, don't, I remember, don't, I don't remember. No. So my grandfather was there, and actually he was there for the duration of the Second World War. As I said, he was unusual in that he was a real Yodea Sefer. He learned a lot. He once told me a, a kind of an anecdote, an incident that kind of highlights, I think, the atmosphere before the Torah revolution, before the yeshiva revolution happened in England, which happened obviously different from America, but it teaches us a lot about the American context as well. So he said that he once, he knew somebody, he met, met somebody, and he'd asked him, what does your son do? You know, so he said, oh, my son's a banker. So he said, he thought to, he said, really? Your son's a banker. You know, what a important job. And he says, yeah, a kvetched a bank. He's, um, translate that into so, English. Yeah, we're definitely, definitely going to translate this for, for the Yiddish. A kvetched a bank means, literally means he, he squeezes a bench. But a bench squeezer was the derogatory term of the time, a bank kvetcher, for someone who just sits there and literally squeezes benches, sits, sits there and does nothing. Obviously, sits, in other words, sits there in yeshiva and learns. That was the attitude. That was, that was the attitude that was very rife then, you know, and says a lot about the period in which there was zero legitimacy to just sitting there and learning. Now that we're in the English context. This yeah. is the, the, the joke that they, it's not a joke, it's a sorry, sorry situation that they say that. Why did Sarashnir save the Olim Yeshivas? Because without Sarashnir and Besiako, no one wanted to marry Yeshiva Bachar. That was the matzav mm-hmm. because of the attitude. So actually, if we're on the kind of American English, uh, the British parentheses over here, but it's just quite interesting because there, you know, there was there was a kind of similar dynamic and uh, before and after. And so one of my pet theories is I don't know if you know this is in England the senior Rabonim, right? Till today, many of them are known as Dayan. Dayan Erentroy, Dayan Duna. Are all these Rabbanim Dayanim? They are actually Dayanim, but let me tell you the theory that goes like this. And one of the main two, we had Gudoli Yisrael in, 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 in England, who one of them was named Adoyim as Dayan Abramsky, right? He was actually the Rosh Basin of the, 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 that base, but I mean, he was a Talmud of Rukhaim Briska, you know. The Velska. joke went that Dayan Abramsky was the first Dayan in the London Basin. Yeah. There was no one a second. There was only a third. Because <laughs> no one can be second to Diana Abramsky. Never heard this before? No, I haven't heard that. <laughs> so this is parentheses within parentheses. It's just instructive. So my, there was another, Diane Weiss, the Mincha Sitzchok, right. who went on to become the Avbasin, the, uh, the Gaivad of, of the Ida Charedis, was known. He was a Diane in the Manchester Basin, the head of the Manchester Basin for 20 years. He was known as, to English posterity, is known as Diane Weiss. Diane Weiss. So, so my, my particular theory on this is got to do with the fact that there's a strong Hasidish impact and impression in England. And so they often have the senior abonim there in the Hasidish world, often known as the Dayan. But my particular theory, getting back to this thing, was that England, British Jewry, which at one point, which after the Second World War was a very, very large community. It was, it was over half a million Jews over there. There was very little respect and understanding for a Talmud Chacham who just sat and learned was no such thing. Therefore, you had to be, what they did understand were it's religious. Interesting, what's interesting is that where did the English Jewry come from? They didn't come from, from Lithuania? Very little literature impact in England. Very little. There's maybe some, maybe some that's what explains England. it. Maybe yeah, that's what could, explains could, it. That was definitely, anyway, the, the theory that I have is that they understood religious functionaries. Who could they respect? Mm-hmm. A judge, right? Mm-hmm. They could, the, the British Jews could respect a judge, a Dayan. And that is why, until this day, happens to be that they are, well, the, the, these leading Dayanim are in fact Dayanim, but what the mainstream Anglo jury, until this day, Orthodox, so normally they Orthodox, do other things other than judge cases, 
And right, but what they understand <laughs> is this right. concept of a die and a judge. They get that. Otherwise, if you don't have that as a day job, what are you doing? And so, so that was the concept, therefore, the, the context, therefore, of this whole of this whole idea of 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 Ekvechda Bank. He's squeezing. He did a bench squeeze. I mean, he's wasting his time. I'm just saying that in the British context, it was definitely the same in in the American context. That's a great example to see what Robarn did in America. And that is what, for me, is the single most important thing that's possible to do. When you look at the Robarn's legacy, by putting down liquid, and get get to a minute, in in fact, what what that actually meant, but by creating liquid, what is he doing? He is saying, he's doing the very hardest thing that's possible. What is that? He's almost like stretching the envelope. He's doing, he's doing the most extreme thing. He's not doing the easy stuff inside. He's putting down the single most important marker for the development of Torah. The single most important marker and determinant of whether Torah is going to take root in a country is, is it legitimate? And is it, is it not only legitimate, is this something that is going to be admired and people are going to look up to and going to try and emulate, going to put resources into or not. And what Rabbi Aaron does, he comes to America and he does the heaviest lifting. He says, here we're going to not just have religious functionaries, Rabbonim or Dayonim or Shochtim. Lakewood is about Gedoli Yisrael. And a Gedoli Yisrael is the concept that Torah on its own does not need any justification other than Torah. And that was his famous, famous Nor Torah. That's all it was. Meaning, you've got to accept the legitimacy of this enterprise because it is, stands on its own regardless of what pairs, what fruits, what it brings into the world. And I think it's so, he, he was the one who broke through. And I think, what was the, you were saying before about, you know, that he was, he said, I want to be honest with you, right? Right, right. So, Balabatim. Right. So, I mean, the context that I just come across this, there's countless stories about this, but his, I think his, uh, his, his main colleague or etc. who who went about building this with him was the late called Mashkiach, who was the legendary Renossen Wachtweigel. And I believe, I believe it was him who said they met with a very rich person um, telling about, about what Lakewood is going to be about, you know, what it's about. And he's, fund, he's fundraising, obviously. Aaron was a mega fundraiser, a lifelong, a relentless driven fundraiser. And he comes along and he says, and they're, and they're trying to, he's trying to say, Sir Baron's not speaking English, it's interesting actually. He spent 20 years in the country. He must have, must have understood English. Must, I presume he understood English, but he was... I don't think we have anything from him in, in English. Not in writing and not in, yes. not in Balpe. I don't, I don't think it's so far-fetched to believe that he managed to, uh, to function without English in America because he had enough people around him were able, able to translate for him. And, also, and, besi- and I think besides which, post-war, you will have found that a lot of the, the people who are even a bit more distant from Torah, Yiddish was a dying language then. It was a dying language in America. I imagine a lot of the people even more distant from Torah would have, would have understood what he was going on about what, in, in, in Yiddish. But anyway, the, the point was that he was meeting with this wealthy person with the Nassenbachtweigel and Ravaran is trying to explain what he, you know, he's got a yeshiva, please fund, etc. And he sees that when Rav Nosson Vachtweigel is translating it, he seems to be elaborating or saying something a bit longer. Somehow he picks up that it's not exactly as, as he'd said. And he says, no, tell the exact thing. And he says, and Ravaran says, I mean to say, we're not interested in producing Rabbonim, etc. We're only interested in Torah, Torah Lishma which was an incredible, incredible, and Renossen Wachtvogel didn't know. He was trying to soft-pedal it. He was trying to give it over in a more palatable way. And what Rub Aaron did with the force of his personality, he said, no, 
Here, we're going to do the heaviest, the most important thing. And I think, to me, the beginning and end of what Aaron did in terms of building Torah in America was breaking through that barrier that America somehow couldn't be, couldn't join every other country that had hosted Talmud Echom and the Torah civilization in the value of Torah and the value, the pure value of learning. It's a very Torah. sad story about Rabban Kotler giving one of his shmusim to Balabatim about the chashivas of Torah where one of the Balabatim uh, speaks up and he says, Rabbi, how much do you make a year that you can talk to us like that? So you see... What did he mean by that? Oh, what did he mean by that? Because in America, everything depends on how much do you make a year. If you make a lot of money a year, you have the right to talk to us, down to us. But how much money do you make a year? So, I mean, there's a very interesting historical document in which one sees the value. What, what he, Again, the context of a bench squeezer, that, that American context. I mean, there was a particular something they found in the in the archives that Dovis Safe and Yehuda Geber found in the archives from that just give you a flavor of what it was actually was they were up against. And when Lakewood was founded, right? So Lakewood is founded when Aaron comes to America. Lakewood opened its doors in 1943. And it became known, and Reb Aaron had just come away with the Rosh of Kletsk. And Lakewood was some resort somewhere in, the, in, in, uh, in New Jersey. It was, it was some bucolic place in the countryside. And so people were talking about the Kletska yeshiva of Lakewood, although it was never called Kletsk. It's an interesting thing. He didn't kind of seek, Reb Aaron didn't seek to preserve what had gone, gone before. But they quote over here from the October 1945 edition of the Orthodox Union, which is presumably linked to the OU. And it was a bi-monthly newsletter, mostly about cashers. And it featured a letter from Borough Park, a resident, offering a suggestion to help the yeshiva. It's just so interesting reading and understanding the context. Very enlightening, this particular letter. It says, There are quite a number of young men in this country who are motivated by a supreme desire to spend a greater part of their time in the study of Torah. In fact, a kollel at Lakewood, New Jersey, has been established for this purpose. It's being maintained largely through the efforts of a limited number of people. Now, it goes on like this. Ad Khan is very, it's good. I mean, it gets better, but listen to this. The creation of a farm settlement project, where the time of these men could be divided between tilling the soil and the continuation of their studies, would be a step forward in giving them a great certain degree of independence and security. And the letter goes on to describe how they could open a cannery that would produce kashala Pesach things. You could just imagine, you know, the future, the future Godly Godly Israel of America kind of, you know, sticking on labels or doing quality control in this, in this cannery. And it's got a name. Um, the average worker on the Torah farm industrial project would find more leisure time which may be devoted to the study of Torah since he need not travel to or from work. Modern machinery and long winter evenings are also conducive in affording more leisure time. I mean, this is so great. It, you know, Rebbe till this day, people write letters. People write letters into the Mishpacha and we get all different interesting letters, definitely, uh, the whole range. But I mean, this one takes some beating. Kind of in the historical, if you read that at the time, this would have made perfect sense. You know, 60 years later or, or, or 80 years later when this is, 80 years later, this sounds ludicrous, right? Now, I, wa I want to pinpoint this in the Kuda, right? Why does it sound like that? Why? Why does it look funny to us? Because in retrospect, he succeeded in totally blasting through that barrier. The idea that you could have people of the greatest, you know, incredible Godoli Yisrael, they don't need to be profitably employed and sticking labels on cans. 
that was not what this was about, and he succeeded. I think. I think. Yeah. The, I think there's one point missing from what you're, you're from your explanation. Go on. And that is, there's a certain, there's a certain uh, zilzul over here. He would never suggest a college student, right, to support himself. Who's so sticking on labels on a can? Well, hold on. College students flip burgers and they yeah. do support themselves. Okay. College. May, as, as something, you know, what they do on their own decision. Like anyone has, they say, Bibi Netanyahu used to wash floors when he was in, the, in, the, in university. Okay. But as a plan, as a plan, you know, I'm going to set out a plan. We're going to make a whole a union of college students to till the soil in order to, there's a certain zilzil over here. And what Urban managed to do was to, flip the coin entirely because today no one would have the guts putting aside the financial issue that you mentioned before. No one would have the guts to do that because that's not what a Bentoya does. I think that's where Rabban managed to change things. So it, but he managed to create a critical mass of enough people out there who are able to say, hold on, we want Torah in its purity. We're willing, we respect that. We may go to work, but we want to support that. Right. I felt personally that the major revolution came to fore at the recent event of the Adire Torah event. When you had thousands, thousands of Balabatim, whatever you want to call them, Torah supporters, came solely, not for Asim Ashats, not for, just to show their respect for Bnei Torah. That whole infrastructure of the Support of Torah, this is something new. What did Rabban have in those times? He managed to convince a few Balabatim to contribute to Torah. But here you're having a whole society which views Torah as the right thing to invest in. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting thing because that particular massive event was a kind of a modern expression, right? Getting people together in a stadium, etc. But what had been, and this is why I'm trying to get out over here, what had been the kind of the bedrock, the soil in which Torah can grow? Torah can only grow when as a society, you know, up in the, the, the core value of a society, one of the core values of the society is respect and veneration for those who are engaged in that the, in, in the thing called Torah. And, and it's, you know, going back to Dinah Bramsky, right? So we, going back to that particular example. So Rechazka Bramsky was, if I remember, before he came to London, he'd been in Siberia. One of the leading Rabbanim in the left in the USSR then in the 30s. And, and bef but before that, he'd been arrested because I think he was the Rav of uh, Slutsk. Now, that's actually an interesting connection with Aaron Kotler because Aaron Kotler, his father in law, because of Aaron's Kletsk yeshiva, was split off from the yeshiva in Slutsk. Uh, so, Rav Aaron, when he was, when he took over as the Rav, when Rechazka Bramsky took over as the Rav uh, Slutsk, so he was struck by one thing, and this is what he would say later. He would say that in Slutsk, you know, I think when Balabatim came to see him, if I recall correctly, they said they would wear Shabbos clothes, you know, to honor the Tamil Chacham of the town. But one of the things that struck him, he said, the simple Jews, right, quote unquote, simple quote unquote Jews, their biggest wish in life, the ones he encountered, he said, was not so much that their children become Tamil Chacham, Torah scholars, right? It was that they themselves would become, meaning he may have been a water carrier or some wood chopper, whatever he particularly did, or a carpenter, but the dreams of average Jews was, were, the dreams were to become great in Torah itself. And that is, as I said, the soil that pre-war Europe, obviously 
We don't, you don't want to look in turn. That was disintegrating fast. But the soil of pre-war Europe was rich with this nutrients, was rich with this attitude that Torah is like, is a glorious thing. And it, it, it's a prestigious thing. And that is ultimately where Aaron sought and managed to transplant to America. Transplanting Torah is not about institutions. And it's not about, it's not about, it's not about people. It's not about anything. It's, it's the, the soil is the prestige of Torah. Does a society recognize this is an elite activity that you have to strive to join that's worth supporting and that we want to have in the society? And that's why I'm talking about that the heavy, when Urb Aaron did that heavy lifting, overcoming that, you know, bank fetcher uh, old attitude, which was incredible to stand up as one. Urb uh, Aaron, there's one thing that almost like it's possible to say, distinguish, set Urb Aaron apart is that Everyone, very many great people had come before and they had failed to change that. They the question is, did they ever try? Because it seems that the majority of the people were at loss for what they saw in America. <laughs> Recently, I went to visit uh, Bell Wine. So uh, I, I mentioned my, my grandfather who was a Litvish Arab in America. So I asked him if he has any... What was he Arab? In, uh, in, first in Connecticut and... Colchester, Connecticut, and then later on in, in New York, in Coney Island. So I asked him if he has any memories about my grandfather. So he says, I'll tell you one thing. The majority of the literature I bought him in America, were, they gave up already. They were, they were very pessimistic if there was any future of Yiddishkeit. He says, Dafka, your grandfather was optimistic that there is a chance. So I'm saying, you know, to play on this, you, you asked, did anyone else succeed? I don't think people tried. I mean, it was such a... You know, you hear the stories how the Zilzul, they're willing to offer, I think, Rav Moshe to be the, the Gabai of the Shul or something, right? And Rabaran to be a Sheikhet somewhere, right? That was the attitude. And try, try to imagine coming to such an attitude and, and, and trying to change the attitude entirely. I think a normal person would not, uh, you know, they say stories, Mitz Hashem, maybe one day we'll get to the Panavijarov, right? But, uh, the stories of Pandav Zerov that he saw the future of Torah and Eretz Yisrael and people looked at him and they said, the war did something to him. You know, mm-hmm. like... Uh, Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that would be the answer to your question. The, the majority of the Rabbanim and the Rashivas did not think that there was anything to do about that. How do you change attitudes? I mean, that's question number one. You're going like a barn to, uh, to, to think... Of, about that, that, that so I issue. think it's not so much. Perhaps you could say it wasn't the Gaonus, his his genius and his brilliance in Torah. I think it's that sheer conviction, which I think we saw very early on in life. I think you can trace it, and as we did in the first episode, they trace it to that very difficult time when he had to fight for his own future as a young young boy when he's being pulled in different ways. But the sheer conviction that that Torah is eternal, that it will be transplanted to America in its purity. Aaron comes, he's in the middle of World War II and America is already involved in the war. And he's escaped from Europe and he's on his own. And he throws himself into rescue work. At the same time, he is already thinking about building yeshiva in America along the lines of the one that he had in Kletsk. And interestingly enough, the roots of therefore Lakewood Yeshiva were not, the roots were actually formally, as it were, he joined and took over an existing group, what they'd apparently been 
was that in White Plains, New York, there was a group that was of Tamidi Kham who these were escaped Europe. Who escaped Europe. They formed what what we know, you know, some type of kailal, and they got together. These were very very big figures, and they asked, and they first had the Lomzer Shiva. Michael uh, Gordon, to, right as as the head, and then followed by Rav Mendel Zaks before he went to the Chavos Chaim Sanlo before he went to Canada, and then they approached Rav Aaron, Rav Aaron Kotler, and he was involved, you know, totally in this war work. But he had this a dream of founding Yeshiva, and he threw himself into it. And, and he had Balabatim again. We mentioned in the previous episode, we mentioned uh, uh, Irving Bunim, and it was Irving Bunim who came along and co-sponsored took on the loan to take over the yeshiva, to build the yeshiva in Lakewood. And, and Lakewood was, was this, and Aaron wasn't sure about Lakewood as a location at the beginning. It was a resort town. I mean, it wasn't a beach town, but it was, it was a resort town. It got off the timing, and this is a very interesting thing, a pattern that we see in the timing, the founding of, of Lakewood Yeshiva was very noteworthy because it got off the ground just a few months before something that happened in Europe. Right, we talked. I think in the last episode of this concept of Azara Hashemesh with Hashemesh that uh, there's overlap when Torah is about to die in one place, it rises. The sun rises in one place as it's setting in another. And as we noted in Aaron's himself, his own birth, you know, at the same time as Volosian. the, the Volosian was as Volosian was closed, and we see that in the founding of, of Lakewood because Lakewood came on stream, as it were, with 14 Talmudim a few months before or within a few months of the closing of the last European yeshivas. Deep into the war, it's, it's, where were the last American European yeshivas? They were in Hungary, right? And in Hungary, Hungary was the last place where the war uh, approached. Right, the Nazis, I think, only inv- invaded there in 1944, and so you know the local regime had turned fascist before. It was almost like one can see in this the great hashkacha that led to the founding of this great place. The kind of overlap. I mean, it's a very, very, very significant thing, right? Mm-hmm. To see that, and I think. 60 years later, or so what's uh, 80 years later, you have this 14, right? Like a baby, Cotton This 14 Talmidim became this massively influential fortress of Torah, right? And I don't think anybody back then, nobody back then, or even back not so long ago, could have fathomed the idea of so many people learning, being involved in Torah and, and, and supporting Torah. And but there's one very important thing I think is worth pointing out about Rav Aaron's approach then. Because as we said, Rav Aaron wanted to do one thing, Torah and producing Gedolim. He wanted to produce, this was meant to be, you know, a factory, a factory for Gedolim. And for and that's why he felt that there was no room for compromise in terms of secular studies, in terms of any other involvement. Lakewood, I think he had, or he had this, he had opposition and these opponents to his whole approach, they called it uh, Kotlerism, right? Mm-hmm. Kotlerism, this, uh, this, you know, this radical approach of Rabbi Kotler. It and seems that there was another part, another facet of, of his shita, is that the idea of living simply in order to achieve that. It means when he saw that they were offering beautiful housing to uh, people uh, learning in Lakewood in the Kailal, he was against that. And it's hard to imagine that today, but... Uh, Hold on. He was opposed to living in a high stock. He felt that's what it seems. That he felt that uh, in order to ensure long-time Torah study, a person has to adopt a certain simple lifestyle, which makes sense. Today, it's very hard to digest, but it does make sense. Today, as in today's, you know, Lakewood or in general, the, the in, Torah, general, in general, rising standards across, across, the, Torah, across right. the Torah world. That's right. You know, I, 
I think during the war itself, he didn't, you know, he wouldn't touch meat, etc. I think on Shabbos, Yont, whatever it was, that was his particular but thing. The fact that he lived simply and his wife, his Rebetzin, lived simply. I mean, that her children say that she never bought anything for herself. Never. So, uh, that's one thing. But number two, it does appear in the articles that were brought in this Mishpacha uh, supplement that he was opposed to fancy housing, to his, even, even someone who was willing to offer it. That is indeed an interesting development. <laughs> to see the roots of that. But there's one thing that I think perhaps to go, again, to borrow terminology from another god, we had something very interesting I once sort of stuck in my mind about from Rav um, Rizre Kutna. So Rizre Kutna had a, had a Talmud, it was Nift actually not very long ago, a few months ago, by Pinch Stolper, who was the director of the NCSY, NCSY for many decades. And one of the very interesting things, actually, before we get into that, his, he, about Rabbi Stolper, this quote had occurred to me it occurs to me every so often, every couple of years, in different contexts. And a few months, I thought of it again. And just then, by a computer, I thought, is Rabbi Stolper still around? Right? Is Rabbi Stolper still around? I put in Rabbi Pinchas Stolper, right? And you wouldn't believe what happened. It turned out there was a Wikipedia page about him. Okay? I think it was there. The Wikipedia page had been updated three or four hours before to say he just died. Wow. Just nifter. And in fact, it would so happen that on the Froom websites, for some reason, Wikipedia was updated before, before them, before the Froom <laughs> websites. And I shared that quote with someone. Then I said, "This is so bizarre." The hashkacha in this—it's an absolutely amazing theory of the development of Torah. And I think it's worth quoting because I think it would very much apply, explain the modus operandi of, of uh, Rav Aaron Kotler. So after Rav Hutner was nifter, so this Rabbi Stolper writes that he was asked, you know, people. In the yeshiva world, he was well-known, but across America, he wasn't. And he was a giant, giant personality, right? A multifaceted personality. And, he and invested in building yechidim. Right. Was. So why exactly? So he had to, Kutna had a theory about this, worked in that way for a particular reason. And he says, Rabbi Stolper, so why was he not more well-known? Why did he not kind of make it go out to the masses in that way? And he said that Rav Hutner had a theory of Jewish history, which is when Klal Yisrael come to a new country, right? Golos, we've been around different places. We've been practically everywhere, right? He said something like many decades or 100 years, or I don't remember how, 150 years, according to his estimation, before a, 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 between a critical mass of the Jewish people arriving in a particular country. And when that country is developed, the society developed enough to start producing Gedolei Torah. Wow. Right. He said it takes a long, long time. And what Rav Hutner used to say is, here in America, we don't have the luxury of that time. We don't have it because oh. Europe's been destroyed. It was everything was rebuilding in America in Eretz Israel. So he put we, everything aside. He said we have to do we have to do 150 years worth of development in a few years and produce Gadol Israel now. Wow. And that's why he worked in this particular way. It's Rabbi Stolper writes. I mean, it's most incredible <laughs> insight. I think it would go and describe everything that was going on in that generation, but particularly of Aaron Kotler, he poured his whole focus and his giant knowledge and, and his greatness into producing great Talmudim. And many of those Talmudim set up institutions. And yes, within a few years, major yeshivas and kolelim were being founded across America. And as we know, those yeshivas and kolelim anchored communities that eventually produced basic archives and more kolelim, more yeshivas, etc., etc. But it all came down to his belief that we need to have great people. We need Gadolim. And Gadolim, we don't have time for that. We need to shoehorn 150 years of development to one. It's a brilliant, brilliant theory. It's interesting what you're saying because there is a Hashkafa which uses the same rationale for the opposite conclusion. 
right? We all know Rav Noach Weinberg is a shita in, in Kerov, that because of, there's a fire going, raging outside, so you don't invest in the fire engine. You just, whatever water you have, you, Lamaisa, he implemented that hashkaf halach Lamaisa in Eishat Torah. There were people who argued with him on this Nakuda. It's interesting using the same rationale, reaching two different conclusions. You say, because we don't have the time, you're saying in the Ravutna's name, so we have to put everything aside and now produce Doilem and not spread out on the expense of deepness and greatness. Right, but I'm not sure if I would line that up totally because essentially, if you look at what Rav Aaron was doing, and I meant we come to his other, he was not in focusing on the world, in, as it were, inside the ghetto. He was taking a Klalisra perspective, a Jewish people's perspective, he's saying, we've got to do everything at once, now, everything, everything. And he did everything, right? In terms, we'll get to in a minute, other things. We have to do everything now, but the only people who are going to be able to produce, do the heavy lifting and to inspire, I can inspire 20 people. They can inspire 20 other people. He was saying, you know, he was simply saying, in the greater they are, they will be able to do. Gedoli Israel are the foundation of Israel and they always have been because they're simply such giant leaders, right? And so I'm not sure if it's a quality versus quantity. He's saying we need these people otherwise we won't be able to get to the quantity. There's a beautiful, a beautiful muscle yeah. about what Nekudah just brought down from Bochmot Chezachi's wife. I think needs a Rafur Shlema. She needs a Rafur Shlema in the name of her father, Amir Chodosh. That the true way to influence a person is is that if you have a cup and you fill it up with wine, so when the cup, only when the cup is totally full, then the wine spills out from the top and influences the people who are in your close vicinity. That's the Nakuda. To invest in one person and his greatness, mm. and eventually that will spill over to the surrounding area. It's interesting, actually, that you say that because I wonder their origin. I wonder how many Girsois and versions that particular aphorism has gone through. Because we had, they say in Aaron Cutler's name, again, he was asked, somebody, he, he said, we're not producing Rabbonim. So they said, so he was asked, so who's going to be the Rabbonim? If, you know, if everyone's just learning all day, who's going to be the Rabbonim? And he came up with something similar. I've heard this quoted. He said, when the clouds fill up with water, it starts to rain, <laughs> right? In other words, that was his approach. He says, we have to just put, you know, greatness. So Mer Chodesh and Rabban Cutler both uh, took from the Alta of Slobodka. Okay, so then maybe that, that is the maybe this is the joint root of this. Perhaps it was an educational approach there. But I think in those years, in those years, I think you mentioned in the, in the previous episode that we had that Aaron would spend a lot of his time in the week in Borough Park and in, in New York, and then he would go up to. He was spending the great uh, interaction with his Talmudim was over Shabbos. You know, in a discussion we had, I don't even know if I don't think it made it into the last episode, but one of the discussions we had was that of Aaron's greatness and brilliance, brilliance in the authentic sense of the word. He was so far in advance for most people that very few people understood him, right? Very few people would have understood him. What was the value of listening to someone who didn't understand? So I remember myself that uh, I learned in Mir under, under, I can't say I learned under, I was there when Rav Nosson Sufinkel Zatzal was a Shiva. And one could hardly actually understand him because he's busy there. You know, he had Parkinson's, he had tremendous shaking. And I remember, I remember myself that once he was shaking so much, that he only managed to say, it was a sort of shisha time in the yeshiva, we were all gripped by the, you know, at the sight of him, just fighting to say one word. And he just said, Teira, right? Teira, said the love. And to this day, almost like the highest praise for, that remains, it wasn't what he said, how he said and who it was. And I think that would have been Aaron's connection. But let me just continue 
just to, I think, flesh out what Rav Aaron was able to achieve in, the, in those years, in those, last, in those last couple of decades. We had Lakewood and the legitimacy of Torah. But he was like a general, it seems to be. He was like, you know, a tactician, right? You can have a, a soldier who's very good on the battlefield, but if he can't see, if he can't envision where the enemy's next moves are going to be, or plot, plot out, you know, in a few moves in advance, uh, the, tech, the tactics and the strategy of what needs to go, then he'll just remain very low. But a general needs to do that. Brown Cutler was, was, in that sense, he saw the entire landscape. And so he saw that there would be, if there was no, you couldn't just concentrate on, on B'nai Torah. You needed, very practically, they needed people to marry, right? And so he took, he took, he was the one who encouraged Robert Kaplan uh, to leave uh, his teaching. And Torah Das. And, and, to go and, and to go to join his wife setting up Beis Yaakov. He said, we need this. And one of the other things he did was, as we said, he joined Shraga Five and Medlovich, 1944. Again, this is early days in America setting up Torah and Masorah. And I think if you look at the Torah and Masorah being this crude, gigantic network of day schools, I mean, if you look at the, the figures today, the figures today, I think there's well over 700 Fox day schools in America educating quarter of a million children, right? Unbelievable. This is unbelievable. And look what it replaced. What it replaced was, you know, the Sunday school or the, or the Talmud Torah in England, actually. Which is the afternoon school. Which, yeah. In England, England, in the context in England, they used to call it, still today, they have their son, they call it Cheda. Cheda is, but, and this is where kids go into secular, non-Jewish schools. And the day school movement has been the single greatest, uh, has been a revolution. Because again, he was able to transform orthodoxy. And this was what one man did. Look, we've got to wind down the second episode over here. What are the conclusions in terms of what Reb Aaron was able to do in these last couple of years of his life? There's a famous mushal from the Alta of Navarduk. What do you see when you saw the first steam train? Right? What, what, do you, what do you get from that? So he says, I see one fiery belly manages to schlep behind him many cold barriers. So translate that into English. That one one locomotive. <laughs> One locomotive. A fiery barrier has the kayak to change the lives of multitudes. And Akadosh Baruch Hu gave us a matana. We really have to view this and be makir toivah to Akadosh Baruch Hu that he gave us a matana that does not happen in every generation. Now, I was trying to think about it. In our generation, like, we don't find this. This is very, very few people. And probably Rabban was a, a yachid in this a person who had such tremendous koichas, and he did so many things. We have Gdolim who are, you know, concentrated on, on one, one aspect, like Psaac or an Arbatzas Torah, but someone who managed to fundraise and be Marbet's Torah and create networks and create day schools and, and help Chinuch Hatzmoy and, uh, and help the elections in Eretz Yisrael. And the, the list goes on. Yeah. I mean, try to imagine where we would be without this Yochid. Mm-hmm. So you sum it up as the power of, of an individual. I mean, in, in a slightly different vein, perhaps looking at the long arc of Amisrael's history. So we've seen, we see this pattern. You mentioned by Barawain, and I actually saw him yesterday in Shul. In, yeah, I didn't get a chance to go over to him, but I think this is something that he notes as well. And this is one of the patterns of Jewish history, which is that at critical times, at critical junctures, where there's a major crisis or a major, you know, divergence, where it's possible, some place where you need extraordinary intervention, that intervention arrives often in the shape of an extraordinary God of Israel, an extraordinary great person. And you've seen this pattern, it goes all the way back, for example, to Rabbi Yehud HaNasi. Rabbi Yehud HaNasi was the end of the era of the Tanoim, right? 
And when the Mishnah needed to be redacted, he was there to do it. Now, he was greater than many of the generations who'd come before, right? And I think it's Rabbi Barawan who uses this kind of analogy, which is like a star before it dies is strongest. It glows brightest. A certain burst. A burst. A burst of energy. And at the end of this, we saw that at the Vilna Gaon, for example, the Vilna Gaon was incredibly great and greater than many generations beforehand. The extraordinary greatness was channeled into Talmidim who created the yeshiva world that we know, right? The, the modern yeshiva, we saw that. So and that could, was the hachana, you see. Right. And we want to see the same thing, for example, just to go, go across Europe to Western Europe, you'd see of Shimshon and Val Hirsch, an extraordinarily gifted combination of so many different forms of greatness. They're just in the time and place to do two things, to stop reform and to create a template for how Jews could be from in a bit in a secular world. And he was able to do this and get, and his effect is felt till today. And in a certain, I would put, therefore, in that historical column, I'd put for Aaron Cutler because of Aaron Cutler had combined unique skill set. He was at, where, as you note, where we're going to find the greatest Rosh Hashiva, the biggest Eloi, the greatest, one of the greatest minds of his generation, right? Together with that galvanizing power, the power to motivate and to organize and understand human nature and build. And he's blessed with this magnetism that you kind of, you can see that bursting out from those brilliant blue eyes, right? As you say, it's impossible to imagine post-Second World War, the rebuilding of the Torah world, when all is said and done, and I say this as someone who comes from England, whether it's Moses Atara and there's the great Torah figures, and there's other places in the world, but when all is said and done, there are two great pillars to Torah world, to, the, to, Am, to Am Yisrael today, which is the, is the Torah world of Eretz Yisrael and the Torah world of America. And he was there with a finger in both and put it in both, in both right. and putting them up. And so I think if I were to summarize, you know, we had, here's a sign uh, yet again that at critical junctures, like Kodesh Baruch Hashem sends great people to build the future of Am Yisrael. Pleasure being with you, Abedalia. It's wonderful. We'll get together again for the next episode of The Builders. Yeah.